Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. I'd like to uh, read a portion of scripture today. Our scripture reading is from Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 12. We're finishing our series we've called the Songs of Easter. These are the servant songs of Isaiah, where 700 years before the time of Jesus, he predicts the ministry, the life ministry, death, and resurrection of Messiah. And the last of the servant songs is found in Isaiah 53. We're reading verses 7 through 12 today, where it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When he makes his, an offering, when he, his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Got kind of an unusual question for you to think about on Easter Sunday morning, and that is, what do Babe Ruth, Joe Namath, and General Douglas MacArthur all have in common? Babe Ruth, Joe Namath, and Douglas MacArthur. Well, other than the obvious uh, thing that they're all uh, old men, old white guys, Americans who made uh, good and uh, succeeded in life in some fashion or other, what they all have in common is that each made and fulfilled a bold promise that took them from being merely famous to becoming virtual legends. So let's consider Babe Ruth to begin with. It was October 1st, 1932, uh, game three of the World Series against the Chicago Cubs, fifth inning, and Ruth was up to bat. He had two strikes against him already, and Cubs fans are jeering him, and the Cubs players are throwing insults at him, uh, you know, taunting this great slugger, uh, you know, that he's got two strikes. He's certainly going to strike out. Now, Ruth is already angry. 
because it's reported that the day before, Cubs fans had spat upon his wife, and he's, he's just hopping mad. And now the Cubs fans and the Cubs players are taunting him. He stands at the plate and points with two fingers to center field, steps in the batter's box, and hits the next pitch 490 feet to dead away center, way past the flagpole in center field, the biggest, most satisfying home run of Babe Ruth's career. Now, Babe Ruth was already on his way to the Hall of Fame when all that happened, but the called shot, as it came to be known, elevated his legend to a whole new level. Then there was uh, Joe Namath. January 9th, 1969, a few days before Super Bowl III, and he's speaking to a crowd, and people in the crowd are heckling him because his, his Jets are not favored to win the game. In fact, the Colts are favored to win the game by 18 points. And Namath, uh, responding to the hecklers, promises not only that they win the game, but he says, I guarantee it which was considered a ridiculous guarantee because the National Football League was regarded as far superior to the American Football League at the time. And uh, the, the first two Super Bowls had ended with the National Football League team, the, the Green Bay Packers in each instance, trouncing the American Football League team. The, the, the National Football League Colts were favored by 18 points over the Jets. And yet, Namath guaranteed a victory. Now, the Colts players uh, took this, and they laughed at it, and they came back and said, well, it's pretty brash of him to guarantee a victory, considering the fact that he'll be playing in his first true professional football game. Well, the Jets shocked the football world by beating the Colts 16-7, to and Broadway Joe Namath went from being merely famous to becoming a virtual legend. And then, of course, there was General Douglas MacArthur. March, 14, uh, March 17, 1942, MacArthur is forced to flee the Philippine Islands along with his staff and his family, leaving behind most of his troops as the superior Japanese forces prepare to invade the Philippine Islands. But as he leaves, he says to the Philippine, Filipino people in a radio address, I shall return. Dark, grim days followed as the Japanese succeeded in conquering the Philippine Islands and treated terribly the remaining military personnel, both American and Filipino personnel, that had been left behind. 18 months later, October 20th, 1944, just a few hours after his troops had begun landing again on the Philippine shores, MacArthur waded onto the island of Leyte, and later that day, broadcast by radio to the Filipino people, I have returned. Within a few months, MacArthur and his forces had succeeded in liberating the Philippine Islands from Japanese occupation, and it was the fulfillment of that promise that took Douglas MacArthur from being merely famous to becoming virtually a legend in his own time. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about these three scenarios. First, what I want you to notice is that, look, anybody can point to center field. Anybody can guarantee a, a victory Anybody can say, I shall return, but it only counts if you actually follow through on what you say you'll, you'll do, right? Nobody would remember Babe Ruth pointing to center field if he hadn't hit that next pitch 490 feet. Uh, Joe Namath would only have been mocked if the Jets had lost that game. 
Douglas MacArthur would have been accused of offering false hope if he had not returned. The glory goes only to those who make good on what they promise. The glory goes to only those who make good on what they promise. Now, the other thing I want you to notice is that the greater the promise that is kept, the more glory is deserved, right? I mean, sure, it's impressive that Babe Ruth hit that home run, and, and Joe Namath will always be remembered for guaranteeing that Super Bowl win. But when General Douglas MacArthur waded ashore on the Philippine Islands in October of 1944, that changed history. It only counts if you can do what you say you will do, and the greater the promise kept, the more glory is deserved. And if that is so, then I think it's fair to say this Easter Sunday morning of 2023 that Jesus deserves the greatest glory of all. Because not only did he make a bold promise and keep it, but he made the biggest, highest stakes promise of all. What was at stake in the promise he made and kept was nothing less than the salvation of the world. In fact, the promise was made by God through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. We're looking today at the last half of the fourth of Isaiah's servant songs, these poems about the coming of Messiah, referred to as the servant of the Lord. They're songs that speak of the life, the ministry, the the death and resurrection of the Messiah. They talk about how he would be filled with the Spirit, how he would be on a mission for God from his mother's womb, how he would live in perfect submission to the Father, but be despised and rejected of men. But here in the last six verses of Isaiah 53, we have the rest of the story. What would become of this promised one who God said would save not only Israel, but all of us from the judgment our sin deserves? In fact, the Apostle Paul says that the gospel we preach is a celebration of what was promised in these verses. When Paul defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says, look, the the core of the gospel has three parts to it. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. And twice he says in these verses that all these things happen in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, we know that there are certain Old Testament scriptures that prophesy that the Messiah would die for sin. There are other scriptures that prophesy that the Messiah would rise again. But there's only one place in all of the scriptures where it's prophesied in the same place that the Messiah would die for sin, be buried, and be raised to life again. And that's Isaiah 53, the fourth servant song. Paul is claiming that what God promised the Messiah would do in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus ever came on the scene, what God promised through Isaiah, Jesus has fulfilled completely, and it's the highest stakes promise ever made. Way bigger than pointing to center field, way bigger than guaranteeing a Super Bowl victory, way bigger even than promising to liberate a nation. It's God's promise to save sinful mankind. Now, Paul must have been a student of Isaiah 53 
Because in saying that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, he's basically giving us a summary outline of Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 12, the verses we read just a few moments ago. We see here all three critical parts of the gospel, what God promised through Isaiah and what Paul says has been fulfilled in Jesus. Beginning with part one, Christ died for our sins. Now, when Isaiah writes 700 years in advance about the death of Messiah, he writes in the past tense. It's almost like reading a newspaper report that someone could have written, you know, at the time of Jesus' death and trial and execution. He says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Well, a newspaper reporter could have written that about Jesus at his trial. And, and yet, Isaiah is predicting it 700 years in advance. Without any complaining, without refuting the charges brought against him, without any defense being offered like a lamb that's being led to the slaughter, he would go quietly along with the proceedings leading to his death. And what does the New Testament record say about Jesus when he was being accused of blasphemy? Well, Matthew tells us that when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Isaiah said, the Messiah will go quietly, even willingly, to his death, a death he did not deserve. There would be a terrible miscarriage of justice that would result in Messiah being taken away to die. Isaiah put it this way in verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered, who even cared that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And what does the New Testament record? Well, as Pontius Pilate, who alone had authority to have Jesus put to death, who said, I find no guilt in him. He didn't deserve to die. In fact, it goes on in the next chapter to say, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. He said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. He didn't deserve it. Pilate knew it. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Jesus was the victim of a grave injustice, perhaps the worst injustice ever perpetrated in the history of the human race. Never has one so innocent been made to suffer such a hideous death for crimes that he didn't commit. And even though he could have called a legion of angels to come to his rescue, he gave himself over to be crucified, not for any transgressions of his own, but for your sins and mine. Isaiah said, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah would be cut off. His life would be cut short. He would be removed from the land of the living. He would go quietly, voluntarily, offering up his life as payment for the sins of others. And Paul says, you know what? Isaiah called the shot, and Jesus pulled it off. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. But that's not all. 
Because here's part two of the promise Jesus fulfilled. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and then he was buried. And you say, well, so what? I mean, people die, they're buried. What's the big deal about that? Well, for one thing, it shows us that he really died. You can't come back from the dead if you haven't first died. And so you have to substantiate the fact that Jesus actually died. A woman once wrote to J. Vernon McGee. I don't know how many of you remember J. Vernon McGee. I think you can still hear him on the radio. Uh, his, uh, his Bible teaching is still played today, even though he's been with the Lord a lot of years. He was this good old boy, country preacher, down-to-earth, amazing Bible expositor. Uh, but somebody wrote to his radio program, a woman wrote and said, uh, Dr. McGee, our preacher said that on Easter Sunday, Jesus just swooned and the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? And as Dr. McGee only could put it, he said, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for three days, and let's see what happens. <laughs> the point of saying that Jesus was buried is to substantiate that he was really dead. They knew dead when they saw dead. That he was buried showed that he really died. But there's something else about his burial that proves he really is the one sent by God that Isaiah wrote about. Look at verse 9 where it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, even though he didn't deserve it. Now, clearly the intent of those who crucified Jesus was that not only would he be crucified between two criminals, but that his burial would be the burial of a criminal. If it had been left up to the Jewish and Roman authorities, he likely would have been thrown into a common grave with the others who had died there that day. And yet that's not how Messiah was supposed to be buried. Isaiah predicted this 700 years before the fact. That yes, he'd be buried among sinners to be sure. Anywhere you're buried, you're going to be buried among sinners. But not in a pauper's grave, as most victims of crucifixion were, but he would be buried in a manner befitting a rich man. That's the opposite of what you'd expect for someone so despised and rejected, regarded as cursed by God, a sinner worthy of such a hideous death. You don't expect somebody like that is going to be buried like a rich man. And yet that's what Isaiah said would happen 700 years before Jesus arrived on the scene. And guess what? That's exactly the kind of burial the gospel writers say Jesus got. Matthew reports in Matthew 27 that when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clear Linen, a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, the tomb of a rich man, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled the great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Hey, it's one thing to call a shot. It's another thing altogether to pull it off. The glory goes to the one who can make good on what is promised. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. Now, here comes the real test. Because Paul says part three of the gospel is he was raised from the dead. You know, this is exactly what Isaiah predicted. This is like Babe Ruth pointing to center field. This is like Joe Namath guaranteeing 
the victory. This is like General MacArthur promising, I shall return. The real test for the servant of the Lord was that he would come back from the dead. And verse 10 talks about that. It starts by saying that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief. In other words, this didn't take God by surprise. This wasn't God's plan B. This is what God intended all along, that the Messiah would give his life for us, that he would be the one crushed. He would pay the price so that we wouldn't have to. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. That's the whole point of it all, that Jesus' life of infinite worth would be offered as the atonement for our sin, as the guilt offering for us. His life of infinite worth given to satisfy the wrath of a righteous God against our sin. His life offered as payment of the moral debt we owed God but couldn't pay. But in spite of that, look what it says. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's saying that this Messiah who dies gives his life as a guilt offering. Well, he is still going to have offspring, spiritually speaking. Those who are spiritually dead, whom he will give spiritual life. He shall prolong his days. He shall live forevermore. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will be the one who will carry out the will of God for the salvation of mankind. Now think about this. For any of that to happen, what Isaiah is prophesying here, for any of that to come true, it means that the Messiah who died has to come alive again. And that's why the news from the empty tomb should not surprise us because it's all in accordance with the scriptures. When the angel says, he is not here, For he has risen, as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Isaiah prophesied it, that the one who would die for the transgressions of others would live again, have many children, and continue to do the Father's will. Verse 11 goes on to talk some more about the ministry of this one who would die, but come back to life again. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge That is, by knowledge of him, by knowing him as Savior, many others will be accounted righteous. He takes their iniquities and and pays for them and puts his righteousness to their account. And that's exactly what Paul says Jesus has done for us. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin." who knew no sin, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin. In exchange, he gives us his righteousness. As Paul puts it in Romans 4, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was delivered over to the cross to pay for our sin, and he was raised to life so that we might be declared righteous in him. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And as people put their faith and trust in him, many are made righteous before God. Death tried to defeat him, but by his resurrection, he imparts new life and righteousness to many and clearly emerges as the victor over sin, the victor over evil, the victor over death itself. And to the victor go the spoils, as they say. 
Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. Isaiah says that because the Messiah was willing to give his life on behalf of others, he would be richly rewarded by God the Father, which is exactly what Paul says has happened to Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And why would God honor him that way? Because verse 12 says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Because he was willing to do all that for us. Do you know Jesus himself makes reference to this very verse in Isaiah? He quotes it. Just before he's arrested and tried and sentenced to hang on a cross between two thieves, as if he were a common criminal himself, in Luke 27, he says to his disciples, For I tell you that this scripture, and he's pointing it at Isaiah 53, 12, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And certainly it was fulfilled because as the Gospels go on to tell us, there they crucified him between two criminals, one on either side with Jesus between them. He was counted as a transgressor, as a common criminal, all the while taking our crimes upon himself and paying the price that we should have paid. And then the song concludes by saying, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah says that the Messiah will bear the sins of many and intercede for transgressors, intercede for sinners. Isn't that what Jesus did when he was nailed to the cross? Even as they're nailing him to that cross beam, he prays for those sinful Roman soldiers who are doing all that to him. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He intercedes for them right on the spot. And guess what? He continues to intercede. He intercedes for us to this very day. The Apostle Paul says that he's interceding for us right now. He has risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, so that who will bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to charge us? It's God who justifies. It's God who's declared us righteous in Christ. Who's going to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is doing what? He's interceding for us. Do you see the picture here? The picture is of Jesus having died, having risen from the dead, having ascended to heaven, now standing at the right hand of God, and any time an accusation is brought against us, he's there to intercede for us to say, no, Father, that's been covered by my blood. No, that sin shouldn't be held to her account. I paid for that. I died for that. Isaiah predicted 700 years in advance that the servant of the Lord would die for the transgressions of others, be buried in a rich man's grave, rise a victor, have many children he makes righteous, and intercede for us. Isaiah called the shot, and Paul says Jesus pulled it off. 
Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And because he made good on the highest stakes promise of all time, because Jesus kept the biggest promise ever made, because he followed through where it matters the most, Jesus deserves the greatest glory of all. And that's what we celebrate today. That in coming alive from the dead, Jesus made good on the greatest promise ever made. That our sins could be forgiven. That we could be spared God's judgment. And that all those who believe in him would have everlasting life. Because Jesus lives, so shall we. Isaiah called it, Jesus made good on it, and we can be confident in it. And so I say today, all glory to Jesus, because he is risen. He is risen. There's a great story told by Bible scholar Gary Habermas about how years ago his, his wife, Debbie, had the flu. And then she wasn't recovering from it the way they thought she should. And they took her to a hospital for tests and and they got the worst news that they could have imagined. The news was that she had stomach cancer and only months to live. And he says, my heart sank as, as you know, I, in four months' time, lost my best friend at the age of 43 after just over 23 years of marriage. But he said, during Debbie's suffering, I often took refuge in the truth of the resurrection. He said, that had been my research area for 25 years. I had studied the the, histor the historicity of the resurrection. I had studied the theological implications of the resurrection, but until then, I never really thought about the practical implications of it. And he said, I'm grateful that a student of mine came to me one day and said, uh, Dr. Habermas, aren't you glad for the truth of the resurrection? He, he said, what would you do now if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead? And he said, I, I began thinking about that. How did all this really help me? Well, Debbie was dying. And he said, I imagine what God might say to me in response to my questions about Debbie. He would ask me, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? Of course you did, Lord, I'd respond. But why is Debbie dying? And he would say again, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? Yes, Lord, but Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? He said, I imagine God repeating the same question until I got his point. There was an answer to Debbie's suffering, even if I couldn't see it. If Jesus has been raised, then I can trust that Debbie will be raised someday too. I can trust in the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It was sufficient to know that because of Jesus' resurrection and because Debbie and I belong to Jesus, then we will be together again for all eternity. Do you have that confidence today? Do you know that if you were to die today that your sins have been forgiven and that eternal life awaits you? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, the Bible says. My wife and I have been going through a, an incredible time of loss lately. We've had five people very close to us who have passed away in the last month. Uh, beginning with her mother and, and then a couple of close family friends 
uh, a friend who was so close, she's like a family member, and, and then my pastoral mentor, the man, I wouldn't be in ministry today except that God used Bruce to, to help me discern a call to ministry. All, all these dear people who have passed on, and it's been, it's been a heavy season, but you know what helps? Is knowing that all five of them knew Jesus as Savior and Lord. Amen. That this isn't the end, we'll see him again. Because we believe that as surely as Isaiah called the shot and Jesus made good on it by coming alive from the dead, that the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, I believe that he'll pull that off too. And that's what gives me confidence to face tomorrow. Tomorrow as we go and, and lay another one of our dear friends to rest. Confidence to walk even through the valley of the shadow of death and whatever else life can throw at us is to know that Jesus has risen from the dead and I shall live in him. And because of the life I have in Christ, I can say because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Can you?